by Colossians chapter 1. When my family moved to the house that they currently live in, uh, I was ecstatic. Uh, Winnie the Pooh, he had the 100-acre wood. Daniel Steves had the two-and-a-half-acre wood. But when you're eight years old, that feels larger than 100 acres. Uh, This vast, uncharted expanse that I was going to get to explore. And so on the weekends, after soccer games, my best friend, he would come over with me, and we would traipse around the forest and explore every nook and cranny that that we could find, and we would utilize our imaginations, and we would find these elaborate battle scenes where very clearly no battle had ever taken place, and we would reenact them, and we would go down to the river, and we'd find sandbars, and we'd play in the sandbars, and one of these times, our imagination uh, got the best of us, and... I looked up, couldn't see the roof of the house, and being the rugged explorer that I was, I began to panic (laughs) because I had no idea where I was. Uh, In my mind, Andrew Weir and I were going to starve to death in my backyard. (laughs) Uh, We we walked for hours upon hours upon hours, which was only about 20 minutes, uh, and we made no progress. (laughs) We thought for sure... That's where we're going to die. And then we realized, well, we never crossed the river. So if we just walk the opposite way, we'll end up in my backyard. And lo and behold, logic prevailed. And uh, we eventually made it back. But here's why it all went wrong that day. Because neither Andrew nor myself oriented our sense of direction around my house. We got distracted by pretend battles and animal tracks. And we lost all sense of direction. Colossians chapter 1, as Paul continues to magnify God, he exposes a a tendency of the human heart. It's a tendency that that you have as well. It's the same problem that Andrew and I faced in a non-spiritual sense. It's that when you orient your life around the peripheral issues of life, you lose your sense of direction. Your, Your heart is very easily captured by peripheral issues, things on the outside that are secondary, that don't matter the most. And when it is, you lose all direction. But in our text this evening, Paul, he he has this poetic praise for Christ, and he also reveals the solution to this. How can you keep your heart from losing its sense of direction? Well, Paul would say, because everything revolves around Christ. Because everything revolves around Christ, you orient your entire life around him. So we're going to jump back into Paul's very intricate line of reasoning here in Colossians chapter 1. Everything that we're going to cover this evening, it it points back to what we already covered. Uh, Verses 12 and 13 of Colossians 1 say, The Father, He qualified us for the kingdom. He's transferred us to that kingdom. And then rather than introducing a new thought, Paul goes on a slight tangent thought. And it's a, a very poetic glorification of Jesus, showing that everything revolves around Christ. So we're going to pick up here in verse uh, 15. And we're going to see that the Son reigns as the supreme creator. He's creator God, so we orient our entire life around him. This is what Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So Paul makes his point beautifully. He makes it up front, and then he's going to expound on it through poetry. Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is the creator. And the contents of this poem, they, they fall into those two categories. Explanation about Jesus being God and explanations about Jesus being creator. So we're going to separate them to help us uh, figure this out. 
So the first, in in verse 15 and also in verse 19, we see that Jesus displays the fullness of God. Uh, This is what verse 15 starts out saying. He's the image of the invisible God. Jesus is displaying actively a God that we cannot see. And this phrase, it's it's alluding all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So when God created men and women, he created them to reflect who he was, his own nature. And the comparison here isn't that Jesus was created, but that Jesus reflects the very nature and the likeness of God. But the second phrase of verse 15, it helps us understand that. Colossians 1, 15, the second phrase, the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn is not indicating that Jesus was the first thing created, but that Christ is supreme over creation. It's the word prototakos, which is most often used to attribute a prominence to a person, uh, the, the highest, the greatest that you can be. And that's what it's doing here as well. So Jesus, even before creation, the firstborn, who, who's before everything and greater than everything, he was reflecting the image and the likeness of the Father. And this reflection of the Father it continues uh, throughout time until Jesus takes on humanity, and then even beyond that, past the ascension, and it it continues forever. Jesus reflecting the nature of the Father. And this is what verse 19 goes on to explain. For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God should dwell. So the Father is entirely pleased that Jesus is fully God, that he's reflecting the Father's likeness in a way that mankind, you and I, can grasp, that we can see it through the incarnation. Only Jesus is the perfect representation of God because he is God, and he's revealed in human form, and he's the perfect reflection, displaying the fullness of God's person through the incarnation. So Jesus is God. But also, Jesus is the creator of all things. Look at verses 16 and 17. For by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things consist. Uh, So look at what he created. I mean, Christ created everything. Paul makes sure he doesn't leave any room for exceptions here. He doesn't want to miss anything. Things in heaven above, things on earth with us, things we can see, things we can't see, seats of spiritual powers, what they rule over, the spiritual powers themselves, and he's given them their authority. Jesus created everything. And this just further shows that Jesus is the fullness of God, because only God himself can do that. Because only God exists before creation, let alone actually doing the creating. So as creator, Jesus is the beginning of the universe. But this section also shows us why he created. This is especially what the last phrase of verse 16 shows. He's not only the beginning of the universe, but he is the end or the goal of the universe as well. All things were created through him and for him. Christ created everything, and he created it for himself. The purpose of creation is to bring glory and bring pleasure to Christ. 
But that brings us on to Christ's continuing work in creation. That's what verse 17 shows. He existed before all things, and he is upholding all things. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things consist, or or they remain uh, in one piece. I mean, what a strange thought to these, these Roman citizens that a man who came to earth was executed on a cross in, in the most horrific and dehumanizing way that he was the one actively holding all of the world together. But Paul goes, that's what he's doing. Without him, uh, electrons, they no longer circle uh, nuclei. Without him, planets no longer orbit the sun. Uh, without him, plants don't convert carbon dioxide into oxygen. Without him, nothing exists or continues to exist because he is creator, ruler, sustainer, and the goal of all creation. So Paul goes, he's the creator, he's God. And if that's not enough to show the supremacy of Christ, Paul introduces a third idea in verse 18. Jesus, as an act of new creation, is the head of the church. Jesus heads the church. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And, and, and Paul, again, is alluding back to Genesis. Adam The first man created in the image of God becomes the head of humanity and he brings death. But Jesus, the creator God, who perfectly reflects the image of the Father, he becomes the head of humanity and he brings about life, new creation, the church. And we're left wondering, how is this possible? Well, Paul says it's through his resurrection. Jesus becomes the firstborn from the dead. So in verse 15, Jesus is supreme over creation, and now in verse 18, he's supreme over death because of his resurrection. He begins new life, and he brings new life to the church. Because of that, Paul says, well, if you create it, you're the head, you're the ruler, you're the sovereign. Verse 20 only adds to that idea. And by him, Jesus to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So not only did it please the Father for Jesus to take on human form and fully and beautifully and perfectly reflect the image of the Father, it also pleased the Father for Jesus by the spilling of his blood on the cross to reconcile sinners to God to restore this this fellowship between sinful man and God the Father. Paul goes above and beyond offering this reconciliation, this restoring of fellowship to these separated parties. Jesus would reorder creation by his death. So that all things, regardless of whether they're on on earth or, or in heaven, they would all be rightly subordinate to his headship. Reconcile all things, put them all in their right place, whether things on heaven or on earth. So this demands one more question. Why would the Father take pleasure in Jesus' reconciling work if it, if it had to involve 
Christ's death. How can the, the father be good if he delighted in a plan that saw the son brutally murdered? Well, the answer is back in verse 18. It's in one of the phrases that we skipped. The reason the father could delight in this plan that led to the brutal murder of Jesus Christ is because this act of love would accomplish God's purposes, making Christ supreme. Look at verse 18 again. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in all things, in everything, Jesus may have the preeminence. The first result, or the result of reconciliation and resurrection is that Christ stands at the center of everything. The Father, the Father is seeking to glorify the Son. And currently, Christ is ruling the church because of his work. When the final battle against Satan is actually won, Christ will rule not just over the church, but over all the world, actively. Why? Because the Father, as God, desires Christ to occupy first place. That Christ reign supreme. Niccolo uh, Paganini was a famous violinist. Um, He was a a child prodigy, and he turned himself into a a full-blown virtuoso on the violin. Um, But Paganini was a a striking figure. He was tall, spindly, very pale, had hollow cheeks, and these these massive hands with fingers that just extended, it seemed like, forever. He, he, He had these thin lips that were almost non-existent, and... His appearance, this kind of ghostly appearance, added to rumors about how he mastered the violin. And the rumor started early during one of his, his first tours, and the rumor went like this. Paganini, the only reason he's so good is, I mean, look at him. He must have sold his soul to the devil. Uh, so while in Vienna, a, a member of the audience exclaimed that the, the devil, they saw the devil helping Paganini play, and supposedly, there were lightning bolts coming off the end of uh, Paganini's bow during a performance. But this is the reality. Paganini was quite literally built to play the violin. I mean, I, I wish that I had massive hands so that I could, could bend them just to do what I wanted as I tried to play guitar. But his hands, he could reach almost the entire fretboard on the violin. And he was, he was built for it. But he also made some incredible sacrifices. His dedicated practice is what made him this preeminent, prominent violinist of all time. Paganini Paganini restructured his entire life so that he could be the greatest violinist alive. And he did it so effectively that people thought, well, he sold his soul to the devil. Well, the Father desires for Christ to be preeminent. And in the act of making Christ preeminent, Jesus displays remarkable power. So much so that people go, oh, well, he's doing that through Satan's power. But now that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, guess what? The Father still desires Jesus to have first place. But the Father doesn't have to reorient his entire life to ensure that Christ has first place. 
What actually needs to happen is that we reorient our lives so that Christ has first place. And this means reordering our affections, the things that we love. And just as Paganini minimized the secondary issues of life so that he could master his instrument, Paul would say, well, Christ, he's the creator, he's God, he's the head of the church. You have to reorder your life so that the secondary things are secondary, and Christ is preeminent. And so this looks like examining your plans for the week and evaluating, well, does this serve to make Christ first in my life? I mean, do buying groceries and paying bills work to keep Christ first? In some senses, yes, because you're providing for your family the way God has called you to. But does staying up until midnight because your next favorite episode on Netflix has dropped? Um, No, that probably doesn't work to make Christ first. So Paul would would have us examine our plans to go, okay, am I making Christ preeminent? Because he should be. Even God is seeking to make him preeminent. Even through his death, God is making Christ preeminent. Are my plans reflecting that? Effectively making Christ first. It, It starts with scheduling our entire life around our devotion to him. Devotions, prayer time, discipleship moments with family. Then we move on to the secondary issues of life because secondary issues, when they're not second, make us lose all direction. So the Son reigns supreme as Creator God. And if God is seeking to make Christ first, preeminent, then we have to orient our entire lives around Him. So Paul moves on from this poetic description of Christ, the Son, to show that the Son not only reigns as creator God, the head of the church, but also as the supreme Savior. This is what we're going to see in verses 21 to 23. The Son reigns supreme as Savior. So we orient our lives around Him. So in this section, Paul uses one of his most uh, popular, I guess, literary devices. He talks about what we once were, and then he moves on to what we now are. Once you were X, but now you are Y. And in this text, he begins with who you were before Christ's work in your life. We see it at the start of verse 21, that you lived as an enemy of Christ. Look at what verse 21 says. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Paul says, as a, as a sinful human being, you were totally separated from God. And more than that, you weren't just separated from him, you were an enemy of God. Your life was making war against God, and it started in your mind. And, and your mind, that was totally against God, it will change the way you acted And so your works were bad too. You had zero hope. Because if your mind has no hope, there's no way you can change your works. But Paul continues on, praise the Lord, to verse, end of verse 21 and into verse 22, saying that you have been reconciled to Christ. You were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. 
even though you were once as far removed from God as you possibly could be, the lofty theology of of the previous section, that, that you could be reconciled, that you could be strengthened with all his might, that was personally applied to you through faith. The Supreme Son, Creator God, He personally worked to reconcile you to God through His own death. So so this alienation, this warring against God, it was washed away, the text says, through the blood of Christ. Christ suffered alienation from the Father. The alienation that we once had, you who were once alienated, Christ suffered that alienation from the Father and the wrath of the Father so that he could bring the alienated sinner, you and me, to have peace with God. So this reconciling has an express purpose, and it's stated in the next two verses here. Verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Christ's purpose in reconciling you to God, I, I hope you caught it, it was there at the end of verse 22, is that he would be able to present you as a saint that is totally free from blame and sin. Totally free from reproach before himself. That's the most beautiful part, that Christ is doing this reconciling and this perfecting, but he's also going to be the one who is doing the judging. He's presenting you to himself. This is what Romans teaches. Romans 14, verse 10, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Christ is the judge on the final day. And so we'll all stand before him, and out of the abundance of his mercy, currently, he is preparing you and me for that day when you will stand before him so that he could present you to himself, holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. But as Paul gets to verse 23, he introduces a a major concern, something that if it goes unchecked, it could lead to the downfall of these believers. Uh, And the danger is that of heresy. Let me read verse 23 once again. If indeed you continue in the faith, right, the true faith, the gospel that you've heard, grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard and which was preached to every creature under heaven. If these believers, if they fail to cling to this gospel hope that they have because of Christ, if they fail to cling to that, and they compromise the truth of the gospel for false teaching, then Paul goes, you move away from the gospel and your only hope. So then this is his charge to these believers. Continue in faith, like people who are grounded in and immovable from the hope of the gospel. I mean, these are the facts. Paul's laying them out. You were alienated, but now you have a share in the inheritance of Christ. You were hostile to God, both in in mind and in body, but now you've been rescued from darkness. 
Uh, You've been called to know and follow God's will because you've been reconciled to God, and he's empowering you to do it. Now he's working in you to present you at the end of time before his throne as a saint who is holy, blameless, without reproach, because through him you have forgiveness from sin. But then Paul, in verse 23, goes, if you fail to do this, though, if you fail to orient your entire life around this gospel, around Christ, who is reigning supreme, you're going to fall into this trap. You won't continue steadfast and grounded in your gospel hope. When you don't orient your entire life around Christ, you don't cling to gospel hope. When you don't cling to gospel hope, you don't remain grounded. When you don't remain grounded, you can fall prey to false gospel and you're led astray rather than being able to stand faultless before Christ. And, and it's this, this line of reasoning. We, we would call it the slippery slope that Paul is introducing. And, but do you see it? Do you see the danger of failing to orient your entire life around Christ? How do you combat that? What, what is Paul's suggestion? How do we make Christ first so that we cling to gospel hope Because he is supreme. And if we don't make him supreme in our own hearts, Paul says, we'll fall prey to the false gospel. So how do you effectively orient your entire life around Christ? There was uh, a little locomotive in the early 1900s that worked around the train yard just moving cars around. Um, And during a busy part of the year, there were several of the, the bigger engines that were broken down and this this long line of cars got brought into the station and the the bigger trains couldn't move them and so the little locomotive said i think i can and he just needed to move it just over the hill to another station and he started out at towards the hill at a very fast pace just chanting i think i can i think i can i think i can and you know the story but soon enough the little engine he's halfway up the hill and he's struggling under the great weight of these, these cars. And so more slowly, he reminds himself, I think I can. I think I can. But finally, he reaches the top of the hill and begins the descent. And he, he drops off the cars. And the whole way home, he chants, I, I knew I could. I knew I could. I knew I could. Um, but you're not a little engine that could. <laughs> nor will simply reaffirming yourself over and over again, you know, I am safe, I feel good, I am well. Uh, that's not going to do anything for your soul. But the story of the little engine that could, it, it reminds us of how it is very effective to preach something to ourselves repeatedly. And there is something that we can preach to ourselves repeatedly that will help us orient our entire lives around Christ. You begin, not by affirming your own ability, because, well, Paul has severe words for those people in, in Ephesus who might do that. But you begin by preaching the gospel to yourself over and over and over again. Paul goes, you, you, you preach the gospel to yourself and, and you cling to this gospel hope that Christ has given you. The great battleground of your faith, it's between your ears. It's in your mind. And, and Satan wants doctrinal error to, to seep into your mind so that you don't cling to gospel hope, that you cling to false hope rooted in false teaching. So 
Paul would have us preach the gospel to ourselves so that we would cling to its hope. This means when you're listening to the news and you begin hearing things from this very anti-God worldview, especially during Pride Month, you begin preaching the gospel to yourself to remind yourself, I'm not a citizen of this world. He has transferred me to the kingdom of Christ. But Satan doesn't only use lies, he uses reality as well to shake our world. Um, Fear and and frustration, they play a role in Satan's plan. So when you're worried about inflation or or frustrated with, with your broken car, you can orient your life around Christ by preaching the gospel to yourself. I, I was totally separated from God. My, my, my evil heart, my, my evil mind, my evil works. And yet Christ, before I was even born, had this plan to reconcile me to God so that I could be brought into the family of God. He offered me hope when I was hopeless. And he's perfecting me. Yes, these other things are real these fears, these frustrations, but they're secondary. And you don't do this because bad news or inflation or, or broken car. We don't do those. We don't preach the gospel to ourselves because those things are, are worthless things to think about. Right? Each of those things have merit. Right? You have to fix a car. There are things in the news that you need to know, but you preach the gospel to yourself because Christ is supreme. And you make him occupy first place and those things that have second place to stay second place so that you don't lose all direction. So Paul begins to wrap up this section of the letter. And he gives us an insight, a a beautiful insight into his own heart and his own life. Um, Because Jesus is supreme, because Jesus is the glorious Savior, because he's the giver of hope, you can commit yourself to gospel ministry. You can subject yourself to gospel ministry. Look at the the last phrase of verse 23, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. You heard this gospel, it's gone to every corner of the globe, and I became a minister of it. So keep in mind, Jesus is, is building his church through Paul. And even while Paul is sitting in this prison cell as he writes this letter, Paul is still seeking to get the gospel to every corner of the globe so that every living, every breathing person could hear the gospel and have the opportunity to come to faith in in Christ, to experience this reconciliation. And so Paul says this, that the gospel is such glorious news that I subjected myself to its message, right? Christ is the ruler, declaration of the gospel is, is his will, and I'm just a lowly servant who realizes, well, the master and the message are way more important than what I want. So before we conclude, because we're going to look at this thought in in the next section, it it leads right into it. Uh, I want to ask you one question about this thought, subjecting yourself to gospel ministry. How far are you willing to go to advance the gospel? Paul has his answer in mind. He's going to reveal it to us in verses 24 and down into chapter 2. But my question's for you, not for Paul. How far are you willing to go for the master's message, the gospel? 
Because there's this good news. The Son reigns supreme as creator God. He's the express image of the Father, fully revealing him to humanity. He's the creator of all life. He holds it together. He's the head of the church. But he's this gracious Savior who reconciled you so that you can stand before him at all times. Will you subject yourself to that gospel ministry? And all of that entails that you orient your, your whole life around the supremacy of the Son. Right? You will end up totally lost, like two young boys wandering around the forest, wondering how to get home, if you make the secondary issues of life first. So because everything revolves around Christ, you orient your entire life around him. Reorder your priorities, preach the gospel to yourself, so that in your heart, in your mind, in your life, Christ is at the center. Would you pray with me this evening? Father, once again, we are incredibly thankful uh, for the ability that we have to be together and to worship. I thank you for the singing and just the reminders that Jesus did pay it all. We, we owe everything to you. You are uh, the gracious master of our lives. Would you help us as we go about our week to subject ourselves to Christ? Because he is the center of our existence. Lord, he's so merciful and gracious. Thank you for his work whereby we're reconciled to you. Help us to live in light of it, to reorder our priorities, to reflect that Christ has first place and to preach the gospel to ourselves so that we're constantly reminded that he is at the center of everything. Without him, we're hopelessly lost. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.